You're listening to Hayes Radio Network, Cannabis Lifestyle Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Compassion Flow Radio. Hope you are all having a beautiful day out there. I We're your hosts, Carly G. And Logan B. And we're so excited to bring you episode two today. It's the end of June, which is Pride Month, as most people know. And here at Compassion Flow Radio, we're all about love and inclusivity. So we are so excited to bring you this guest today. Wow. Absolutely awesome America and the world of marijuana. Richard Eastman live somewhere in Topanga Canyon. (laughs) (laughs) So we are going to keep the compassion flowing today, and there's no one better to help us do that than Richard Eastman. Richard, welcome to the show. Wow, Carly, you know, it's been over 50 years for gay pride, 50 years for civil rights. Well, actually, it's 500 years or 5,000 years because this is a plant that's been on this planet since the beginning of time. Cannabinoids in our body from mice to deers to dogs to cats to human beings only discovered recently by doctors in Israel many years ago discovered THC in the cannabinoid system and ultimately... Here we are on your second radio show, Carly, and and I've known you for about a year now, and Logan and Mr. Ali and all the compassionate, caring people that have helped a band of hippies and diggers and black panthers and and flower children and gays and straights and hookers and pimps and everybody they hated. We loved them to death. And ultimately, Dennis Perone, the author of California Proposition 215, my dear friend, passed away a couple of years ago, and we met 50 years ago. Oh. Almost this year because he came from Vietnam in 1970. And me, I grew up in San Francisco from 1953 on. Moved to Hollywood in 1976, the year of the bicentennial. Rumored to have saved the Hollywood sign with Alice Cooper and you Hefner and Tom Bradley in the LA Times. And only had to put up $1,000 and my guts and my courage and to stand up for... Well, what happens if you take out a L? It's Hollywood. It ain't my fault that, you know, religion and censorship and, and the war on drugs and the war on people and the propaganda that Hollywood brewed since the early silent days and television and movies and the police story and, you know, cops just got canceled after 32 years or whatever. And, you know, the DEA uh, trying to kill us all back then and uh, Nixon. Oh, my God. I survived a lot of this. And I survived the war of the worlds. Because in 1953, Paramount Pictures made a film called War of the Worlds. I'm not going to hog the mic too much, but I wanted to tell you that, yeah, what was War of the Worlds about? Well, at that time, uh, early 70s, I was uh, before I saved the Hollywood sign, I was doing a little publicity work here in Hollywood, and I got a job with Ann Robinson and Gene Barry and Les Tremaine and George Powell, the guy that made War of the Worlds and many of the greatest classic films in Hollywood, and we did the 25th anniversary of War of the Worlds. In that movie, how did they kill the Martians? The littlest germs. And even Tom Cruise's version, it was all with the little, well, the rumor is I'm not from Mars, I'm from Uranus. So wear <laughs> clean underwear, I get everybody in the end. And that's a good way to open the show with a hippie, a digger, a flower child, a radical, a revolutionary, a pot smoker, a reefer man, uh, Dennis Perone's buddy for over, you know, Dennis, God bless him, Harvey Milk. I crossed paths with Harvey Milk. And Sean Penn. It's sort of weird because I worked in the movie industry as a motion picture customer, a Western costume. And then, yeah, Dennis and Harvey Malk, two gay men in the military 50 years ago, 
And uh, Harvey was in, uh, in the military actually a little before Dennis because he was a few, a few years older than Dennis. And he was in New York around the time working for Hair too, Michael Butler. And we opened with that wonderful song, This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. The old guy, I wasn't on the stage, but my costumes were. I did the floppy leather hats, the purple leather pants, the fringe coats that like Sonny and Cher used to wear. And there, when high times, the old owners said that I was the Green Lantern in that story, uh, it, it is confirmed that I did smoke with Sonny and Cher once upon a time in Hollywood at this place called the Blue Grotto on Fairfax Avenue. And Tanner's was open back in the 60s, and this was like 65, 66, so I'm a little teenager, and I'm bopping down from, you know, San Francisco to Hollywood to check on the scene because, you know, Haight-Ashbury was blooming the summer of love, and I wanted to go into the leather business. And I went into the leather business because I met this uh, guy with a car rental named John, and he said, okay, I'll invest in your leather shop. Where are we going to do it? And I said, I have a factory in Tijuana. And he said, are you a smuggler? And I said, no, I'm not a smuggler. I'm just I'm using leather, and, and we used the labor. And ultimately, yeah, a lot of leather goods were being made in Tijuana. It was easy to get them across the border. You'd pay the duties. And I'd ship them to my shop in San Francisco, which was called, was called Poor Richard's Leather Shop. This is like 1969, 1970, 50 years ago. And Dennis just got out of the Vietnam War, and he didn't want to kill anybody. He was, a he was in the Air Force, and because he was like a conscientious objector, and, and I don't think they knew he was gay at the time, uh, he didn't want to really, he was complaining about, they gave him a rifle, like in the movie Hair, and, and he was like, I'm not going to shoot anybody. And they said, okay, we're going to make you work in the morgue. So Dennis had a rough life, you know, preparing the bodies that Nixon was sending back. Just like now that uh, in the current society and bring up politics, they just discovered that, the, you know, uh, this administration was letting the Russians somehow pay a bounty to kill our soldiers in Afghanistan. And that's in the news just in the last 24 hours. Yeah, Logan ago. actually just shared that story. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like I'm reliving 50 years ago. Just talking with you on your radio show. And I just wanted to give a little background about how Dennis and I met. He used to roll up a thousand joints. We're going to actually get there. Okay. Because that's a story that I definitely want to yeah. hear. But we've, we've got some things to talk right. about. Yeah, so I don't want to hog people, the whole... <laughs> For people who don't know, Richard is a dear friend of ours. He's an AIDS survivor. He's a cannabis pioneer. He's a gay rights activist. He has worked for decades, literally the last 50 years, just fighting for people. And... Richard's also been on the permit for the last 13 years for the annual 4th of July smoking at the White House. And he was present for one of the very first pride parades ever back in 1970. Yeah, that's so, true. Thank you so much for being here, Richard, today. Thank you, Carly and Logan and, and the staff of this radio show <laughs> and, and the listeners. And it is Pride Month, so I think it's really important to talk a little bit about the history of Pride Month in the United States because I know there's a lot of people who are, you know, unfamiliar with the story and, and why the Pride Parade even exists. And, you know, me and Logan did a little bit of research, and it was just so fascinating to read read the story. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's not always been acceptable or legal. Yeah, right. I actually States. read in the early 1900s activities associated with... Um, Queerness were basically legal, and it was police riots that eventually led to the, you know, pride movement. So, right, but that was really, really yeah. So the Stonewall riots, like, let's talk about the Stonewall riots because yeah, we can. Do you you yep. want to tell us about the Stonewall riots? Well, I wasn't there, but you? I was in the L.A. riots, right? The Black Cat riots, which mm -hmm. is the famous pre-Stonewall. That was mm -hmm. pre-Stonewall. Right. Oh, okay. Well, as a you know, I've been openly gay my whole life, uh, even though when I was in my early youth and even the 
than when I was doing the leather for hair. You know, nobody. I, when people asked me if I was gay, I said I was happy, and then I wouldn't get a date because <laughs> we were so used to being called queer, faggot, homosexual, all that. So growing up in San Francisco, you know, the most liberal city in the United States. My grandmother, we were living on Knob Hill, eating in Chinatown, going to North Beach. I had a little tiny TV watching Howdy Duty and reading stuff from Stanford and just being prepared to be this kid that had to grow up to be Richard Eastman. But ultimately, yeah, she used to take me down by Polk Street to the C's candy store and stuff if I was good, and I'd get one of them little lollipops. And I think this is like 58 or 59, you know, I'm like uh, six, seven years old. And one day she says she's holding my hand. And they, in those days, they had to have a little leash for some kids because they were rambunctious like me. I was always like, oh, Grandma, I'm going to go over there. And then whoop, I'm in Woolworths, and then she's at the lunch counter, and she's got the house detectives looking for me, but they found me eventually. But ultimately, she looked at me one day, and she said, I don't want you to grow up like these men around here. Do you notice there's not too many women on Polk Street? And I was like, oh, what do you mean, Grandma? Just give me another candy bar or whatever, and let's go home so I can study some more. I really wanted to be an archaeologist as a child. Oh. And it's like I never finished high school. There was too much to do to save the planet. And I never went to college, but I did go to college like from one to five because I was homeschooled by my grandmother, who was this wonderful woman that made me a speed reader or maybe uh, I had this smart brain. So yeah, getting back to why did this all happen in mm -hmm. Stonewall, you know, Sylvia Rivera was a transgender, Puerto Rican, uh, uh, fiery uh, woman, man, man, woman that stood up and, and even during the AIDS epidemic, which we'll talk about a little later, the women, the lesbians, uh, the trannies were always standing up for the gay men because, you know, in the 1940s and the 50s, even in the 30s in Hollywood, you know, we talk about all the horrible things like uh, Black Lives Matter with George Floyd. Uh, this was happening with uh, gay people uh, yeah. quite often, too. And you can imagine being black and gay or, or, or Puerto Rican and gay right. or, or even white and gay or, or white gay and a hippie and then like controversial like me. And it's like a, it was rough because even my first ex I was always people thought I was always older than I actually am. Even before I got an ID or, you know, years later, a passport and all these other things that you need to get around in the modern world. But ultimately, yes, it was a, a, an amazing time. And I wasn't at actually Stonewall. I, I visited mm -hmm. the Stonewall Ball years later when I was taken to New York by some of my friends to actually go to the High Times office and meet them. But in 1970, uh, actually in 68, we had a riot here in L.A. And I happened to be down here scoping out in between my leather shopping and going back to San Francisco. There was this bar in Silver Lake called the Black Cat. And, and also another friend of mine, uh, what was his name? Anyhow, he had one of the first gay bars in L.A. In those days, you couldn't dance or touch anybody. And they would have, it was just like in those old Elliot Ness movies. They had a red light that would go on or something. If the red light started blinking, the gay people couldn't sit next to each other or touch each other or dance because wow. that meant the vice squad was coming in and they could they would haul you out and arrest you and 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 you had and they to, were conducting these right raids, and even the people that were transgender or or drag queens in those days you had to have one article of male clothing on you to prove you otherwise if you had all feminine clothing on you then you would get charged with impersonating a woman which is these are the weird laws that were on the book. So some of the drag queens in those days would either have men's underwear on, under the dress or whatever. But it was like, yeah, they, really they archaic, archaic laws. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the cops were really, and even being a gay hippie, 
you know, back in the, the 60s on Haight Street, the Summer of Love and all the things, and hanging out with the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin, uh, feeding the kids in the park. And I, Chet Helms was a dear friend of mine. He discovered Janis Joplin, and she took a little piece of my heart. And, and I was cooking food in this little Chinese restaurant on Haight Street next to the psychedelic shop. We would panhandle. All of us kids would go out and grab the money from the tourists, and we would have fill up 55-gallon drums not garbage can drums, but they would never had garbage men, and we just made them into soup cans. And then the churches in the neighborhood would make uh, a coffee can bread. The, the, the big can, cans of coffee bread, we used those to put the bread in, mm-hmm. and, and we would wheel it down from Haight Street, and we'd have the flatbed trucks, and the Grateful Dead would be playing, or Janis Joplin, and it would be like, it was pre-summer love, after summer love, and then there was the death of the hippie, and we could go on for hours about just my adventures in San Francisco <laughs> from 1953 to 1976. But my whole goal of grandma wanted me, she was a hat lady too. She used to take me to all these rich people around San Francisco. And I guess she was selling hats, but sometimes I think, well, all these rumors about me, am I related to some famous politician or something? I'm thinking, well, maybe she was grabbing money to help Kennedy because this was 1959. And she used to take me to the Kennedy campaign headquarters on Market Street. And then when the parades came around, Governor Brown, his father, Edmund G. Brown, the first Governor Brown, be in a parade car. And once again, Grandma had me on the leash, but I broke through the leash one day and I ran up to the car to shake the governor's hand of California when I was a little kid. I guess that was my first obnoxious way to get to a politician. It was like, hey, notice me. So then I moved to Los Angeles and then the Hollywood sign happened and it was falling down. And it was like 77, 78, and I was living in Beachwood Canyon, and the Beachwood Cafe is still there, and I decided to make a calendar and raise a dollar, and I tried to save the original sign, but it was made of car hoods and telephone poles to promote a real estate development. And then Mayor Bradley was a friend of mine, the long-term black mayor of Los Angeles four times. In the LA Times, I met this reporter, and she was like, well, Richard, we really want to do it. Will you, your $1,000 investment, maybe we could raise some money. And then the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce came in, they, they wanted me out because they wanted to rebuild it entirely and I eventually they dismantled the old sign and sold that off as like pieces of relics and then the opening night party for the Hollywood sign I didn't even invite me I had to sneak up in the rainstorm but when I took off my trench coat it was like I crashed the party and everybody was like he's here and along the way I worked at Paramount with the War of the Worlds and hung out with people like Alan Carr and Robert Stigwood and the Bee Gees and John Travolta and you know Olivia Newton-John and I was living I, I was at the parties where there was only 50 people and oh my god it was it was with the days kids were snorting cocaine it was real we were smoking a lot of weed but the weed and then the the brandy and the cognac and the Hollywood mythological thing and it took me 10 or 15 years to get a job at the motion picture company that did Gone with the Wind the Ruby Slippers my goal grandma wanted me not to be a hat maker but I had to get into Hollywood to change America because she told me Hollywood was the government and she said Richard you're not going to be the president you ain't going to be a movie star but you're going to be meeting and don't be a businessman don't be a landlord don't be even a marketeer feed the squirrels feed the people they moved me to over near uh, somehow we moved from Nob Hill to Golden Gate Park because it was like they were prepping me to run away and, and become this flower child and take LSD and smoke weed and dance naked in the streets of San Francisco and that's how I became this legendary digger well, what's a digger? Different than a hippie and a yippie. Because I mentioned the yippies started the smoke. And in actuality, a shout out to Allen Ginsberg, one of the most famous gay poets of all time, actually started the smoke in New York City in 1967. So here we're celebrating the 50th. But because of weed maps, not that I like them too much, they had a museum last year. 
Uh, you were there, Carly. It was a wonderful example of Dennis's uh, Cannabis Buyers Club, and I'm in a hospital bed on a TV set with Bill Clinton every two minutes, and Tommy Chong and I uh, were there opening night, and they were open only for a month, but then we convinced them to stay open another month because they donated some money to AIDS charities. And my favorite charity last night, Elton John was there, and they raised $700,000 for Project Angel Food. Now, why would I bring that up? Because when I was dying with AIDS, can we get serious for just a minute about that? And uh, when Western Costume let me go, not because of the owners, but it was. And I don't want to bring up high times on that owner because then maybe I'll say it'll be a whole other radio show sometime. But ultimately, I, didn't, I lost my movie insurance. My lover was from Mexico, and I had a cold that wouldn't go away. This is in, like, middle 94, like oh, 25 years ago. And he took me to the doctor, and I did a test, and it was like AIDS. I had a full-blown AIDS. I had 22 T-cells. And for the people that don't know, uh, your immune system can be anywhere from 500 to 2,500 in any individual, no matter what age you are or what illness you have or if you have no illnesses. So it was like, well, well they don't know what he had before he had 22, but anything under 200, you can get opportunistic infections. infections. And I had the pneumococcal pneumocystis pneumonia, which is the one that kills most people with AIDS. And it was like, I didn't have my health insurance. He took me to the hospital, it was county hospital. I was in there for a week. It was a horrible experience because those were in the days. Now we're living in Corona and the mask and, and something that is fearful that people are comparing it to what happened as an early AIDS activist and survivor because I now I'm a long-term survivor and some people think I'm actually cured and I'm, I haven't said that yet and the government can't prove I am and Magic Johnson's wife made a mistake when she said he was cured but we're actually in like a remission with these antiretroviral cocktails. And I had taken the experiments. The doctor that saved me died mysteriously, saved Magic Johnson, AIDS Healthcare Foundation. You know, they, they're both too busy promoting their hotels, which have become like slumlord situations. And they don't want to cure us because my pills cost $5,000 a month, Carly. And that's the new that's kids, mm -hmm. the kids that they want to get on PrEP, which is PrEP is like a, 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 a mild version of the protease inhibitors. To, so if kids don't want to use a condom, they might not get HIV. So they get the kids now hooked on $1,000 a month. But my pills cost over $50,000 a year because I'm on the triple cocktail. I helped invent that. And it's like we're cash cows, either for AIDS, cancer. And you had the cancer survivor on your last show. The yeah. lady was really wonderful, and, and, and marijuana does. Actually, marijuana is antiretroviral, and that's mm -hmm. the reason the government has studied this, and they did the Institute of Medicine study. And then when Dennis asked me to open the L.A. Cannabis Fires Club in 1995, we did that with Scott Imler, who's since deceased, and Brownie Mary, and, and my lover who was murdered. And it's like, how does the government hurt Richard Eastman? They hurt the ones I love, or they take them away from me, whether they're movie stars, politicians, doctors. But me, I just keep marching on. And, and you've I, been doing that for 50 years. For you've 50 been years. On. And I know we were Let's talking. Let's take it back to the Stonewall yeah. Riot. Because okay, so I really want people to understand what happened that day. Because a lot like yeah. what's going on right now so, with all the police raids and all of this brutality, you know, the, the LGBTQ plus community was dealing with that at that time. Stonewall Inn was a very well-known establishment that allowed, you know, queer people to come and, you know, congregate and have a good time. And it was considered a safe space. 
And leading up to the Stonewall riots, you know, these six days of riots, there there was these police raids that happened. And uh, the police actually came in and they arrested 13 patrons, took them out, I think, into the streets. And as crowds gathered, that's where, you know, uh, as you mentioned, Sylvia Rivera, she... They say uh, she threw the first brick or her high heel. Right. And, and uh, you know, I wish I would have been there that night, but the black hat was similar. Lee Glaze, that's the name I was trying to remain. remain. God bless Lee Glaze. He would, Morris Kite was a gay liberation front friend of Dennis Perone and I and Harvey Melks. And they and here in Los Angeles, they started the Gay and Lesbian Parade, uh, the Gay Center, and, and they took down the sign at Barney's Beanery. All civil rights actions comparable to, I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement even had it worse lately than we had it. But ultimately, those riots happened in L.A. similar. They came into the Black Cat. People were dancing. Uh, some of the patrons got upset. I was living in Silver Lake when I came down to L.A. because it was a cool place to go because most of my boyfriends were either Latino or black, and and I wasn't able to bring them to West Hollywood. A lot of people don't want to bring up the fact that when West Hollywood, before it was a city, it was sort of run like a no man's land for the county of Los Angeles and the sheriffs and the whiskey go-go was up there, and they hated the hippies, they hated the black people, they hated the gay people, but... It was run really by white gay people that didn't let black and brown kids come to West Hollywood. They don't talk about that history too much. So I was in Silver Lake, which was part of the gay liberation movement that led to the freedom that we have today, where we're all together. And, and like when the riots happened on my birthday, Rodney King said, can't we all get along? And basically marijuana is such a great medicine. And these... The, the, even in the riots in New York, they were smoking weed. They probably were drinking some beers. And, and the cops were just hitting them with the billy clubs and, and, and putting the queens and the transgender uh, ladies and, and, and maybe the leather guys, too. You know, we're all, and it's like, we're all a rainbow color. And this has been going on far too long. Walt Whitman, back in the Civil War, was one of the most famous gay poets in American history. And he nurtured the soldiers. And it's like in Washington, D.C., there's all these monuments, even in the uh, DuPont Circle, which is named after the DuPonts, which were really traitors to the nation because they're one of the reasons why marijuana is illegal because they didn't want to have hemp as a fabric or a paper or a medicine or CBDs or, or anything because it was for the elites. And they used it to put people of color in jail long before the last hundred years. So these, and gay people, well, what's faggot mean in England? Faggot means a stick that you put on the fire, okay? And I find it horrible that we're finding these young black men that they're claiming they're hanging themselves. Young black men don't hang themselves. No. And when that happened in Palmdale recently, I thought, mm -hmm. oh, my God, that's not far from Hollywood. And I can... The birth yeah, of a, Logan and I, we actually live out in uh, the Antelope Valley, yeah, yeah, and it's just... It's, yeah. It was shocking. So, so these riots in 1969, 1970, 50 years ago in Stonewall sparked a nation of individuals. All of us, we have to unite. And, and divided, they can control us. And this administration, I don't even like to mention his name too much because the rumor is I am a right-on candidate for the president of the United States, <laughs> right on the Eastman, the first gay man living with AIDS, run for president. You know, November 3rd, 2020. Whether I win or not, some people think I've been the secret president of America for 57 years. Because that's how long I've been smoking weed. That's pre-Stonewall. That's 1963. How old was Eastman? Supposedly he was 10. I do really think the government not only has lied about my origins and my name, but my age. I often think that, God, if I was in my 70s or in my 80s even, and they just 
you know, made me think I was just born in 1953. I'm not starting another conspiracy, but sometimes I think, yeah, it is such an anti-aging medicine. I feel 27 most of the time. And I forgot to tell you, I have 800 T cells. I'm undetectable. I'm having a virtual, awesome. I've been having virtual meetings with my doctor. And this is the first time in like 25 years they can't take the blood out of me because the government sucks. They're like vampires and the pharmaceutical <laughs> industry is the same thing. That means phlebotomy, they take your blood. Some people think they took my blood and developed something from it. And that's another conspiracy because all of us have individual blood types, and even with corona, you know what they just said about corona, Carly, recently? Salt water could be the cheapest way to get rid of it. And I heard that in the beginning back on March 16th. Oh, and, and a shout out to the vitamin C company. I can't remember their name that Carly got. And to the listeners who want to know, my friend who's the host is not only my friend, but she actually sent away for some vitamin C pills that were like 1,600 milligrams or something <laughs> that I could swallow. They weren't like all the horse pills. And I got to admit, taking the HIV pills years ago, Carly, I had to take 50 pills. Sometimes I would choke on pills. Remember I told you when you yes. said you wanted no, to give me... No, we're so happy we've been able to help yeah, you so that way. Stonewall, when I went there a few, uh, about eight or nine years ago on a trip to New York for a couple of days to go into the High Times office, the old owners, not the new owners, uh, my friends took me to a little Italian restaurant my business partner is unfortunately in a nursing home, the, one of the last survivors to know what the truth about Richard Eastman, whatever happened with the, my business in Mexico, or if the government really thought I was a smuggler. Or, you know, I, I don't think I was a smuggler, but I did have four other business partners, and there's only one still alive. And they say dead men and dead women don't talk. And it's like, I got nothing to hide, and I don't want to hog up the whole show. So what else did you want to ask me, Carly? I mean, well, I want to ask you about the very first ever Pride oh, Parade. Oh, yes. Let's get back to that. this is all about Pride. Yes. So that's really what we want to yeah. focus on here. So I... being a, a very happy gay man, even back then when it was difficult to be gay, I was still living in San Francisco in 1970, but I was frequently going back and forth to Hollywood. And as I understand, on June 28th, 1970, there was two yes. different marches, parades yes. that essentially happened, one in yes. Los Angeles, yeah. one in uh, San Francisco. Yes, and I was at both of them somehow. Oh. <laughs> you know, well, I don't know how that happened other than I was on the midnight flight, which PSA was 10 bucks, and somehow I was able to drive back and forth or whatever. But I was when we were in Hollywood, we marched down from Vine Street to uh, Highland, and of course the Hollywood Highland Center wasn't there, and in San Francisco we marched down Market Street. And, and, and in those early days, there wasn't, you know, a million people like there is now in San Francisco and like a quarter, uh, half a million in Los Angeles, but there was thousands of people. Uh, Hollywood probably had less than San Francisco that year, but ultimately I, I was really like commuting. I've often, I used to, I, I've been really gay my whole life, I did have a, a love affair with a woman once she was killed in an auto wreck or I thought the government killed her. And once again, my paranoia of how do they hurt me, you know, the, and it's like I'm an honorary bisexual. But ultimately, the pride situation that year was a lot of us weren't out. There wasn't a lot of the freedoms that we have even 50 years later, but we were trying to get there. And... and, and just like with the marijuana movement, it, it was almost like going up on a roller coaster. There was ups and downs. And it's still been that way with the gay liberation movement. And ultimately, even the current administration attacking the transgender community, taking away their rights for medical. You know, everybody has a right to medicine. You know, in this country, these, there's over a million and a half people living with HIV. Okay, there's probably 10, 20 million people living with cancer and other illnesses. And we know that marijuana is essential. 
Why is it essential? Because around the same time as I was doing the gay prides in both city, I was helping another movement called Hare Krishna. I helped start an incense company called Essential Oils, and they were famous at the airports with the incense sticks and everything. And I, well, I wasn't a devotee, you know, but I do know Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. And that was also in here. So, yeah, well... What else can I what say? What was it like? Like, what was it like being there at that? Well, first it was. We were just used to marching. It's almost like I've been marching my whole life. Uh, it was still I, illegal then, wasn't it, to show your pride uh, for the very first one? No, it wasn't really it wasn't. illegal. It, it was illegal according to actual California state law and federal well, law. Well, we it did it. We did it because the permit holders did it. Right. Yeah. And, and the police chief in so Los Angeles. So you were Angeles, taking a risk, essentially. We were all. Haven't I been taking a risk for the weed too? <laughs> it's like. Sometimes I think I'm the biggest risk taker in American history just because of a plan. I, I often joke with you kids and everybody about being the tomato guy because everybody loves pizza. But you can fuel a revolution with feet and mouths and, and people yelling and screaming. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, yeah, what does that mean? Ten days that shook the world, 18 days that shook the world, a year that shook the world. Woodstock happened that year too. Okay, so it's like, was I at Woodstock? No, not till years later. I visited Bethel, New York, when uh, Richie Havens died. And that was a similar experience because there was all these old, ancient hippies there and, and a lot of gay people and people. And it's like, I was never in Woodstock. So it's like, just being there, even though it wasn't a half a million people in San Francisco for that first parade or a half a million in Los mm -hmm. Angeles like it is nowadays, it was an experience that was just, it was, I don't want to say it was like going to the circus, because life is like a circus. <laughs> and me, I just had to be me and, and participate. And in that movie, Super Jaime, I don't like to promote the company that made it. or I'm in it at the end. And, and some of those words I said is, I'm just a little seed that grew up into a big tree, like in California. And I think everybody is a civil rights activist, whether you were there 50 years ago or you're here today. We're all little seeds that can grow into a big tree. And, and I encourage... Anybody that's my age that was there and is listening or even wasn't there and is listening, whether you're gay, straight, bi, human, whatever color you are, whatever creed you believe in, whatever religion you believe in, Dennis Perron once said, all use is medical. So it's like even when we were in these marches and protests, and I know it is the 50th. It's when the 50th. was he there? Uh, was Dennis there that Well, first I don't think Dennis actually, you know, that's a year where I don't remember the exact day he mm -hmm. showed up from Vietnam with his duffel bag with the two pounds. But I can talk about what happened. Yeah. As soon as he did show up, Mr. Perone, when he got out of Vietnam, was able to smuggle two pounds of uh, Thai stick. And Thai stick was an opiated uh, version of marijuana wrapped around a little like bamboo stick. And ultimately, even in those days, it was the most strong, potent marijuana on the planet. And he became a legendary pot seller and dealer in San Francisco. And uh, at the time, well, all my friends used to call me the reefer man. I wasn't really a pot dealer. I was more of a promoter of uh, leather goods and incense and, you know, happenings and hippie stuff and mm -hmm. feeding the people. And, and it's like, but I did. Uh, Dennis made me uh, actually admit before 100,000 people at the 40th anniversary of the Summer Love in Golden Gate Park that I was arrested once for marijuana. And not to say that the government conveniently hid it for a long time or I didn't talk about it or it was expunged or however, whatever the Eastman. 
A lot of people don't realize that Dennis and I were in jail together in the early years of the uh, furlough program where they would let you out in the daytime to work and we had oh, to wow. sleep in jail. Dennis was arrested in jail for selling weed. And me, I was arrested in jail for selling weed too. But only I was caught in a, a setup on Knob Hill where I had my leather shop and Alioto, Joseph Alioto, famous mayor in the past history of San Francisco, and the Mark Hopkins Hotel was right up the street. And we were like the rich hippies on Knob Hill, but we weren't rich because my friend was like probably the big pot dealer and me. I was the leather guy running the leather store and I don't know what was happening in Mexico so I don't want to admit on this radio show that whatever happened Dennis said he kicked me in the leg and he said okay Richard I'm never going to trust you unless you tell all these people right now that you were arrested for pot you don't have to tell them we were in jail together but just say that you were arrested because Dennis used to tell me never trust anyone that's never been arrested for marijuana <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah. because ultimately even in those days even like in the gay liberation movement. Who can you trust when you have to have a red light bulb going off? Right. And that was not only That's in so Los crazy. Angeles, it was in San Francisco. And I believe at the Stonewall Inn, they had a similar situation with the red light bulb. And, and it was like, I heard stories of Hollywood and New York in, in the 20s and 30s. We all know that Rudolph Valentino might have been gay and Asmovia and Theodore Barrow was a terror lesbian and it's like okay who else Cary Grant you know Randolph Scott John Wayne might have had a gay affair and so many people but they just couldn't yeah be so liberation was in everybody's mind being there at that time and it sort of reminds me of when I marched down Hollywood Boulevard on June 14th with my friend Paul Scott a uh, former HIV AIDS commissioner a uh, longtime friend of Richard Eastman we opened the Inglewood Wellness Center together 25 years ago the largest black owned community organized marijuana shop in the nation. I said, Paul, do you want me to march with you? He said, yeah, just don't say anything. <laughs> so I get there in front of the Gromit Chinese Theater. There's Mitchell Farrell. Uh, a shout out to the city of LA for leaving Black Lives Matter on the streets in Los Angeles in front of the Gromit Chinese. And I do think it should be there permanently. And, and, and it should be like, I am proposing no traffic from Highland to Orange. And we make that the People's Plaza. And we do a terrazzo of Black Lives Matter in the asphalt, not just painted there. Incredible. So if you're Mitch listening, Mitch, do it. And so when I got there, it was I saw Paul and he had the bullhorn and he reminded me of Harvey Milk with the bullhorn. Because when I first met Harvey Milk, that movie Milk with Sean Penn, Sean Penn won the Oscar, and Dennis had a small role. He wasn't actually in the movie, but they had a guy playing him, giving Harvey the weed and everything. But Dennis used to say, we really met in the bathhouse, and they didn't want to put that on that part of the story, uh, and they didn't want to show Harvey being a big old pothead that he was, and, and with his long. And they showed a scene where he cut his hair and he wore the you know used suits, but they didn't actually say that Harvey Milk mentored him for his political and helped Harvey Milk more than just getting him high. And I have to shout out to Dennis Perron for doing the same for me, because I did run for city council in Los Angeles a couple of times. We tried to make Hollywood a city, secession. My friend Gene LaPetra, we had, uh, he put up a million dollars. I had a thousand dollars, but thousands of people voted for me. And then when I ran against as a write-in Mitch Farrell, when I wanted to be a city councilman, I only got two votes. I often thought they know how to shred the votes in Hollywood too, because uh, Mitch is the gay councilman. And it's like, uh, you know, when they painted uh, San Vicente and Santa Monica, the transgender flag, uh, I saw the mayor, my friend Lindsay, shout out to Lindsay Howrath, the mayor of uh, uh, West Hollywood, for allowing it to happen because the kids went into the sheriff's station. They said, are you going to arrest us for painting the transgender flag for our march? And the sheriff guy didn't know what to do. He was like, oh, uh, First Amendment, it sounds like First Amendment. We're not going to arrest you. When are you doing it? We're doing it right now. 
So the sheriffs came out there and blocked the street. So in the middle of the night, they could paint the transgender flag where the march ended. And when I was walking by that late night, getting back to East Hollywood where I live, I saw Lindsay and she had the black mask on. And she just sort of looked at me and I I didn't think at the time there was the mayor. She was overseeing it happen. So... And that's another reason why Black Lives Matter had such a successful, peaceful event is there was no cops, no sheriffs. And even Paul Scott looked at me and he said, Richard, we did it. There's no cops, no police. Everybody's having a great time. And I thought, that is an amazing thing. Because on July 4th, coming up in just uh, six or seven days, uh, Washington, D.C., 50th Smokin' has turned in John Pilka and Dana Beal, the producers on the East Coast, have decided to honor Black Lives Matter movement in, in D.C. and turn it into a smoke-in Black Lives Matter in D.C. Because who went to jail for way over 100 years for pot? More black and brown people. Yes, so, And we know about social equity not being true and, and the injustice of people getting their records expunged and everything. So we're proposing here in Los Angeles uh, because of the corona, I'm not afraid to go to D.C. This is my, for 12 years, I've been in front of the White House, longer than any living president that's been there for four years or eight years inside. And I'm, people are saying, why don't you ever go inside? Even as a tourist, and it's like, if I go inside, I'm staying for four years. Okay. <laughs> so anybody can be an activist. Anybody can fight for your freedom. But united, we're strong. And my voice and whatever I did was for the squirrels. The birds and the bees, the little kids, the women and children, and a few good men. Because Stephen Hawkins, a great astrophysicist, I didn't know him. And people think I have this super intelligent brain. And he did, obviously, because he's got 23 different PhDs and Eastman's only got some pot in his pocket, right? But he said the end of the world will be due to stupidity and stupid men. And Mike, and, 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 you know, last night we had the virtual pride parade on TV. And I saw many of my friends in the transgender community, the leather community, the nuns, the perpetual nuns. I knew the original ones in San Francisco. They helped everybody with AIDS in the old days. And if it wasn't for the courageous lesbians and the women that helped people like myself with AIDS, because they used to put the food on the floor. I was still in that era. And they came in in the spacesuits. And you think Corona's bad. <laughs> A lot of my friends died because they couldn't get off the bed to get to the food. And when I got off the bed to get to the food, I could barely get back on the bed because my lungs were so ravaged from the pneumocystic scarini pneumonia. It was a rare uh, lung disease that really affected people of the Mediterranean, but then it had started popping up in a lot of gay men of all colors and everything, and that's how the, one of the first diagnoses besides Carposi sarcoma and all the other horrible things that can happen if you have less than 200 T-cells. I never got to zero. A lot of my friends, they used to name their T-cells the lower you got. Wow. And and there were I have had some friends that got to zero and they're still alive, yeah. but uh, you know that is uh, a fighting for uh, marching and, and resistance because it's like a medicine that does so much for so many people, and even I, I even in the Stonewall riots people were smoking weed. Mm -hmm. Well, they're, and this brings me back to so I mean for the last fifty years you have been fighting right. for le legal weed. You've been fighting for these gay rights and Human I mean rights. it wasn't until. 2015 that you know there was even same-sex marriage recognized that's right. by the federal government I, I mean that's so recent that's only I five and years it, and how does it feel i want to know from the standpoint of somebody who's been fighting for this for so long how does it feel that there's still i mean there's still states that have these 
outdated laws right. on their books. Like, how does that feel to have worked for 50 years and still be in this place where there isn't equal human rights? I know. Uh, a lot of people have asked me over the years, and I might not want to sound funny, but I had the Armenians ask me, because they love me too, it's like, why didn't you fight for Armenian genocide? Then I've had people, gay kids and straight kids tell me all these years, why didn't you be more upfront about gay marriage? To do what Dennis and I did, and Harvey really was sort of like a secret promoter of marijuana. He didn't, I mean, he was a great supporter of it and everything else, but what we, you know, to take one issue that relates to everything and be able to do it. I wish I could have done more for the gay marriage in America earlier. And as I was mentioning to one of the people here in the interview room earlier, Jimmy Carter, President Carter, was going to legalize marijuana. But you know what messed it up, kids? Uh, a guy named Keith Stroop, who uh, was the founder of Normal, was at a party at the White House, and one of the president, and they were in the Oval Office, and the president wasn't in there, and they were sniffing coke on the president's desk, and one of his aides walked in and told the president about it, and, and Dennis and I were visiting Keith Stroop in Washington, D.C. a few years back, and somewhere in my archives there is the tape of Keith saying, yeah, we sort of messed it up, Dennis, you know, Jimmy Carter was going to legalize pot, and my friends and I, the lawyers, were sniffing the coke. So why were the lawyers keeping saying they wanted to make it legal when they really wanted to keep it illegal? Because when it's illegal, they make more money. Well, it's just like you said, you got to free the weed to end the corporate greed. Right, so that's our saying with Occupy, like getting back to when I said Dennis and I gave out the four pounds. But, you know, Stonewall, it's been a stone, and Trump talking about his wall, and the Great Wall of China. And basically, what? Did, why did Dennis go to, back to Southeast Asia to vacation in Thailand? He was in search of the Thai sticks. And the last time he went back, he was in a motorcycle accident. After, I didn't even mention the Hotel Normandy. You know, Dennis and well, his... Well, yeah, let's get yeah. to your cannabis uh, activism just a little bit. Because well, you, you're well known for, you know, having... Yeah, and that marijuana expos and newspapers. And, and compassionate, giving out compassionate yeah, use meds. Yeah, uh, I've know, given out... Well, first of all... Dennis and I, we wanted to show the world that we not only could open Cannabis Buyers Clubs, because when he opened the San Francisco Cannabis Buyers Club, we called the one in L.A. the, San Fran uh, the L.A. Cannabis Buyers Club until it became the L.A. Cannabis Resource Center when they went into the technicalities. But ultimately, I helped open America's first uh, marijuana magazine called the L.A. Gem, which was out for eight years, the Journal for the Education of Medical Marijuana. My photos are internationally famous, Ruben McBlue kooky guy. He's still around uh, running a cat farm for homeless cats. And then uh, uh, I started the first marijuana expos that turned into HempCon, Hike Times. Dennis and I did a, a 10th anniversary of Prop 215 in the West Hollywood Park Auditorium. It was only five bucks to get in. Nobody turned away for lack of funds. The boots were only 250 bucks. Now you got high times doing these things where it's 100 bucks to get in, 50,000 for a booth. Yeah. Where's the compassion go? So then we also opened a hotel. Dennis called me one day. We'd been joking about opening because he had a bed and breakfast at his home in San Francisco for travelers, and it was the Compassionate Care Castle still there. It's a, now a museum. But Dennis calls me and he says, Richard, go over to the Hotel Normandy. I said, what do you mean? Uh, John, my buddy's there. He wants to show you our new uh, adventure. And it was on Valentine's Day. So I, and the Hotel Normandy was built in 1927, 200 rooms, classic old Victorian hotel, little rundown. <laughs> Might have been a hooker hotel, few bed bugs, like a Cheech and Chong movie, which is what Dennis is going to lead into. I get over there. And there's this kooky guy that looks like Dennis's relative or whatever. This, his name is John. And he says, yeah, we got the hotel, Richard. Call your friends at the LA Time. Call CNN. You know? So the rest is history. 
Dennis became the manager. I was sort of like the assistant manager until our lawyer said, don't be the manager. So we became the marketing. And that was going to be a weed hotel. It right? was America's first weed hotel. We had it for a year and Dennis got sick there and had a stroke. But, and then it, it, the people that owned it, that sold it to our friend, tried to get Dennis and I not being paranoid. And then we were going to make a Tommy Chong and Cheech movie there in room 420. And it was 50 bucks a night, uh, dog friendly, all the weed you could smoke. And it was a little run down, you know, Dennis was jumping over the fence to try to find some uh, abandoned furniture, you know, like a scene in a movie. And then one day I get a phone call, Richie, get over here right away. Dennis, we can't move him. He doesn't want to go anywhere. I jumped into a cab because I lived over in East Hollywood about 10 minutes from the Hotel Normandy at 6 in Normandy. I mean, this is like a big old, old hotel and Dennis is in room 420. I go in there and he's laying in the bed and he's like, Half of his body doesn't move, so he, he said, no, no ambulances. And I said, Dennis, do you want to live? And he was like, no ambulances. I got a cab. It was like a scene in a movie. We got him in the cab. We rushed down 6th Street like a scene in a movie, and the cab driver, I told him, this is because Dennis ran for governor, and he was a well-known world humanitarian, my friend. And I thought, oh, my God, he had a stroke. I, I mean, he felt that. I felt he, he had it. We got him to Cedars-Sinai, got him in in two minutes. He was there for 45 days, so it was $180,000 vacation. And why did I put him in there? It's like I said, I saved your life. He lived another nine years. Cigarettes eventually got him and the VA and the pills. But I'm proud to be part of the Dennis Perron Legacy Project. When we did the Weed Maps Museum, John Entwistle, who married Dennis Perron, a dear friend of Dennis's for many years, and they did get married. And uh, I didn't go to the marriage ceremony because it was up in the north and I didn't want to go. I threw one in L.A., so Dennis had two marriage <laughs> ceremonies. But ultimately, you know, he formed this thing called Dennis Perone Legacy Project, and there's 29 of us on it. There's three of us that live in L.A. and 26 there. And it's to perpetually uh, save Dennis's home, and it's now being operated as sort of like a museum for the movement because this is on uh, Castro Street. Harvey Milk was in the place. The Castro uh, Harry Hayes, about. you're talking about civil <laughs> rights. Harry Hayes is considered one, and John Burnside, they were lovers we're like back with the Madison Society, like the uh, 1958, 59. One of the senior people in the gay civil rights movement in America was in hospice in Dennis's basement at the castle there. And Dennis used to give, when I was dying with AIDS and everybody thought I was gonna be dead 23 years ago, cause they said, oh, you're gonna be dead. You're in Newsweek, we gotta send you to England, gotta send you to Switzerland. You know, it was like wham, bam. I thought, well, can I save everybody before I'm dead? Dennis used to give me his bedroom and to go sleep on the couch because he lost so many friends. And, and it was like getting back to when he used to roll a thousand joints. He was like the Pied Piper of weed in San Francisco. I always had plenty of weed, but we used to like to go watch. Dennis would have pot parties. If you take a pound of weed and you got enough people, unless you're like me and I can roll a joint a minute, 60 an hour, I don't know if I can roll a thousand for next week, but we're gonna see what I can do. You can roll a thousand joints and about a pound of weed. You get about it and, yeah. and not good into the profit margin of these places, but $5 a joint, you can see how some of them make money. When we were kids on Haight Street, I have to tell the listeners, you used to get a bag of weed in a brown paper bag, a kilo for 50 bucks. It was pressed from Tijuana, Mexico. Oh, I said I was working down there, right? I don't know, it, was, uh, it wasn't in my shipments, but it was just leather hats. But ultimately, God bless Dennis Perron for the inspiration that he not only gave to Harvey Malcolm, Brownie Mary, God bless Brownie Mary, she was the nurse that made these brownies for all the pot patients. She was arrested 23 mm -hmm. times, acquitted. She was my dear friend. She used your social security check today. Yeah, and she used to make a thousand brownies at a time. The rumor is I make pretty good brownies too, and I have had select, and I lost a couple of patients 
in the nursing homes. I don't deliver the stuff. I give it to my friends, the compassionate caregivers. They pay for the brownie mix. I don't charge them for the weed. And I lost this guy named Leonard. He, had, uh, he was an MS patient, and I've had a lot of MS patients that live many years with marijuana therapy. Sometimes they're homebound in the bed. They have to have the breathing apparatus at night. He had shakes in his hands. For the last two years of his life, he was nibbling on my brownies. The shakes went away. Wow. He got his appetite, but Corona got him about a month and a half ago. His caregiver called Sorry. me and said, we lost Leonard. And I said, what do you mean we lost Leonard? I, my brownies didn't do it. You know, I'm always, And he said, no. He was in the nursing home. He got the Corona. They sent him to Good Samaritan Hospital without filing any zippers, rights. I didn't say his last name. Whoever, there's a million Leonards. You know, he passed. So I thought, for the last two years of his life, I became Brownie Mary. Mm-hmm. And Brownie, the last two weeks of her life, when I went to visit her in the hospital, she had her arm in a cast. She had a little teddy bear. I brought her some of the pins that Dennis and I used to make with a pot lay. And she said, Richie, I know you got the age. You got to help Dennis. She was crying on my shoulder. She said, I don't know how long you're going to live, Richard. But he don't have the age, and you do. You help him. You know, because it's like, okay. They were so afraid to arrest us. Janet Reno, the attorney general, became my friend. I, I, I met President Clinton. I met... Barack Obama. I was at his inauguration. I went actually to Denver to help him when there was no legalization, and I got permits at the Democratic Convention more than once. And I went to ask Bill Clinton in 96 in Chicago with the AIDS, Michael Weinstein. We asked for a billion dollars. They gave us a billion and a half, which led to the doctor that I told you that died in a cab mysteriously, making the protease inhibitors. So ultimately it is, no matter how much we try to liberate ourselves, we have to liberate a plant. Because Dr. Todd Micaria, who was involved with the Schaefer Report during the Nixon regime, discovered that marijuana does 6,000 things. Now, if it does 6,000 things, why didn't the government, they knew about that then, because Dr. Todd advised Nixon not to do the DEA, not to do Operation Intercept, not to put Paraquat on the weed. Some of you don't know what they tried to poison us hippies with Paraquat. Now they're trying to poison you with a thing called Corona. I, don't, I can't legally say they invented it. I've never really said they legally invented AIDS, but think it's a no-brainer when you think about we become a commodity of a pharmaceutical industry. Rockefeller, I'm not afraid of that name. I'm not afraid of DuPont. I'm not afraid of Hearst. I'm not afraid of Anslinger. These are the conspirators that worked with the pharmaceutical industry, the alcohol industry, the tobacco industry, the gangsters, the mobsters, the bad politicians, to stop a plant which tried to stop a people, a liberation of your mind, the movement, the universe, to save the bees, to save the squirrels, to save the earth. And that ultimately brings it back to why you do what you do every year with the annual smoking. And you actually brought along a poster over here I next did. to Logan. And I'd love for you to tell us. Yeah, let me I'll stay right there and you can just. Quick. Here, maybe I can get it. Watch the fire. Oh, I can get it in your camera there, too. See, look. Well, this is uh, just one of the 50 years of the posters, and it's a sort of a funny one because the guy that designed it used to work for Walt Disney. I met him one year, and he did three or four years of the, uh, of the posters, and this one he wanted to do me like General Washington. And uh, he worked for Disney for 25 years. How could I pay this guy? So he came up with this poster. This is 2016, the year that Trump took over and Hillary was, you know, and it's like, even Kim Quiggle was helping me that, and John Pilka said, oh, there's so many cops this year, why that? It's almost like the government wanted me to be George Washington, and if I was George Washington, I didn't cut down a cherry tree. <laughs> it was a cannabis plant. So let me move that back with uh, Logan. But 
There's 50 years of these posters. There's 50 years of archival footage. When Nixon was the president, there were 30 or 40,000 people at the smoke and uh, on the grass, on the ellipse, over by the Lincoln Memorial. Henry Bacon Park, they named Henry Bacon Park after the architect of the Capitol on the Lincoln Memorial. This year, we're going to be uh, probably at a park called Farragut Park because a lot of you know that Trump tear gassed the people and they were trying to, people, the, the protesters, uh, which are my brothers and sisters, were taking down Andrew Jackson. Well, John Pilkas suggested that we put up a statue of Bob Marley made of weed. Okay, Andrew Jackson was a racist president. Most of them have been. You know, when I, uh, when I helped Senator Obama in Denver, it wasn't easy in the Mile High City. You know, I'm living with HIV. You have to drink a lot of water going there. I had a breakdown just before I went there, and uh, sleeping pills were almost getting me. I've never really said that on the air or in the media, but I was recovered with Indica, and they didn't take me off the permit, and the rest is history. We went to Denver. I thought a few handful of people would show up. 3,000 of us showed up. It was a long march, three miles to that stadium where Senator Obama accepted the speech to become president of the United States. And they had a free speech zone set up with big fences. And those fences were like the police could come in and cage us all in. And we were smoking weed, all 3,000 of us marching down the freeway, down the side streets to get to this free speech zone. I decided at the very last moment that I wouldn't take the people into the free speech zone. And it was the greatest decision of my life because Obama found out about it and the government wasted a million dollars to put up those fences and hire all the cops with the tear gas and everything else because we weren't violent and we weren't going to be violent, but we maybe we were going to smoke some weed. And once we did that in Denver, it wasn't legal. And they would have done that to us. They had the fence around, you know, it was mm -hmm. like a double perimeter so the cops could be, there was a right. fence for them and they're like a little cage so they could get out. After they tear gassed us and they could close the gates and we're all in there and then they just process it. So I made the great decision and I think Obama heard about that because when, shout out to Kim Quiggle of the High Quiggle Healing Center in Long Beach, one of the longest and greatest surviving cannabis dispensaries in the history of America, if not L.A., just because of the five years she helped John Polka and I and, and the pioneers of the smoking at the White House. And I've often said this is my last smoking every year. You know, why? Why would it be my last smoking? Well, you know, I'm 67. I'm undetectable. I still feel 27, but usually I go to D.C. and I warn my friends I don't know if I'm coming back because I go into the swamp. They follow me around. Maybe they tried to kill me in D.C. a few times, not being paranoid. And I can't say I'm indestructible because I do bleed. And I was almost dead more than once, not just from AIDS. But till my last dying breath, I will fight for our freedom. Gay liberation, straight liberation, squirrel liberation, free the bees, free the weed, and corporate greed, survive Mother Earth, and try to save what's left of a little planet that I dropped in on 1953 when one of the greatest sci-fi films of the world was made in that year, War of the Worlds. What are we living through? We're living through War of the Worlds. I told you earlier, the littlest germs killed the Martians. I'm from Uranus, that's my joke, but it's like there's eight, or eight other planets. I don't know why I picked Uranus, but it's like everything goes in your mouth, comes out that way. And edibles are great because they do work. You know? <laughs> they do, they do. Yeah, and, and insomnia almost killed me. And, and the sleeping pills did, and, I, and I'm, I'm a, I was never really an alcoholic. I gave up beer when I got AIDS. I lost 20 pounds on my belly. I used to weigh 180 pounds. I'm 5'11", you know. People keep saying, you're so skinny, Richard. And I'm saying, I'm, I weigh what I weigh when I was 18. I'm 160. You know, I mean, I'm all muscle. I mean, there's no fat on me. 
You know, uh, my doctor keeps telling me, and by the way, my doctor is, used to be the real doctor in Washington, D.C. The government, almost all these AIDS doctors seem to be either affiliated with the VA or scientific things. And my doctor used to work for one of the mayors in D.C., my current doctor, a black man. Shout out to Dr. Milner of AHF. He said, basically said, yeah, you can go to D.C. if you want, Richard. And, and somebody in this room earlier was going to buy me a ticket. And it's not like I'm defeated because I didn't go there. Because this year we're doing the first virtual smoking at the White House, July 4th. First virtual in-person live from Washington, D.C. and live from somewhere in Hollywood, California with Carly and Logan and Mr. Ali and Sarah and Richard Eastman. And you never know because I've invited people like Tequila Mockingbird. You know, from the Robbie Krieger band, I've invited uh, uh, Richard Marseille, who's a, a longtime pioneer of, uh, he was at the uh, 10th smoke-in 40 years ago. You never know, we might have a shout-out to Tommy Chong, Snoop Dogg, and uh, Damian Marley and Mozzie if they're in town. They can come by and sing a little tune. I know uh, I've been known to break out and singing, and Carly, I guess we only got a few more minutes. Yeah, well, I just wanted to say thank you so much, Richard. Thank you for your activism. Thank you for yes, everything you've you. done for human rights. And I just wanted to read this quote from the 2005 Supreme Court decision. It says, No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people have become something greater than they once were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. So I just want to say that everybody has a right to love and happiness. And I just thank you for fighting for this whole time. I'm sorry that it's taken so long to people to have their human rights. But that's all for today's show. Thank this you guys so much. This is the so dawning much. of the age of Aquarius. The age of Aquarius. Aquarius. And we hope you guys all keep the compassion flowing. Free the weed <laughs> and then corporate greed. Live in Topanga Canyon. <laughs> Richard and the weed. <laughs> what? You're listening to Hayes Radio Network, Cannabis Lifestyle Radio.